Welcome to a 2016 Kessler Foundation Researcher Speaker Series. Guest speaker, Dr. Denise Kirsch, presents Development of a Virtual-Based Cognitive Rehabilitation Treatment. Dr. Kirsch is a research scientist in the Traumatic Brain Injury Laboratory Kessler Foundation and assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School, the State University of New Jersey, and is a licensed psychologist in the state of New York. Dr. Kirsch has recently been awarded funding from the National Institute on Disability and Rehabilitation Research to develop an innovative virtual reality-based intervention to treat impairments in executive function in individuals with TBI. Dr. Kirsch also receives funding from the New Jersey Commission on Brain Injury Research to investigate the role of cognitive reserve in TBI. This presentation was recorded on Monday, February 1, 2016, at the Kessler Foundation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey, and is sponsored by Kessler Foundation. I'm going to be talking today about my line of virtual reality research, and this started about in 2011, and I this has since developed into a couple of different types of projects. There's, as you guys probably know, there's the Department of Defense project that I'm collaborating with Karen Nolan on. I'm not actually going to be talking about that today. I'm just going to be, because that's kind of a joint effort between two different labs and two different areas of expertise, which is physical, more balanced, and cognitive. Today, I'm just going to be talking about my cognitive line of research within virtual reality. So I'm going to start from the very beginning, which is how this project began. Um, but before I launch into that, I wanted to go through what virtual reality is. Well, the definition is it's a computer-generated simulation of image or environment wherein the user can interact with or manipulate objects to perform actions. Okay, now most people um, have heard of virtual reality and they've heard about the benefits you can, it's kind of like being in a video game, you can interact with the environment in, in a normal time and space. So the sequence of events happens is kind of like in real life and the environment looks like a real life environment and in fact, that's the goal of it, really to simulate real world conditions. The timing of distractions, it's, it's wonderful because with virtual reality, you can actually send someone out into a real life situation, but have them not have the dangers of being in that situation. So you can control how much stimulation there is. You control how many distractions there are and so on and how complex the stimulus is. So if someone is really functioning at a, a level of impairment that's, that's you know, they're post-injury, they're kind of acute, they're having difficulty with some of the more basic tasks, then they're able to slowly ease into that with virtual reality. You can control how difficult the stimuli you expose them to are and gradually as they gain competence and increased mastery of those skills, you can increase the level of difficulty. And as I mentioned, it, it creates a safe environment. So as you can imagine, it would be dangerous to put someone who had just sustained an injury straight from that injury behind the wheel of a car. You can give them practice in a safe scenario where they're not hurting themselves or not hurting other people until they de develop that mastery. It also provides enhanced motivation. So who doesn't like to, no matter what age you are, play a video game or have work with something that's graphics related. If you are doing, anybody who's ever gone through physical therapy, and this is gonna be a reference to the DOD grant, but anybody gone through physical therapy, hurt their leg or something, they have to do the same repetitive motion 
over and over and over again. And so to create some interest and put that in a virtual world, you kind of forget about the repetitive motion of it and you get into the underlying theme or the storyline behind that virtual reality environment. So in that way, you can actually motivate people to want to do the therapy more and as a byproduct, they improve more because they are more interested in doing uh, and spending time in the therapy. Most people don't understand that there are different kinds of virtual reality. So most people think of virtual reality as immersive, like the Oculus Rift. You have these um, head-mounted displays that you put on, you kind of get immersed, and you actually are in that 3D world. And that is one kind of virtual reality, but virtual reality is also non-immersive. So it can be a standard computer interface where you interact with a joystick or a mouse on a 2D screen. And as a matter of fact, more often than not, rehabilitation applications prefer non-immersive environments for a couple of reasons. One is that the head-mounted display can cause dizziness. That's even a factor that's seen in non-immersive environments. But once you put on that head-mounted display, it can cause a lot of dizziness. And after brain injury, people can be more, even more susceptible to that type of dizziness. So we've then developed our research based on this non-immersive approach. So I'm going to talk about where this research began. We started out with an evaluation tool that we are calling Assess Sim Office. And it's a virtual office environment. And we were looking to develop this software so that we could evaluate different types of executive functions in an office setting. So executive function is basically a catch-all category for a whole bunch of other different functions. So executive function, people refer to it sometimes as if it's, it is its own cognitive domain, but there's so many different things within the executive function domain that are considered executive function. They're very different from one another. For example, planning and reason and organizing is an executive function. Problem solving, working memory, holding information in your mind and manipulating it. Divided attention, selective attention, vigilance, Inhibiting, in, inhibiting an inappropriate response in any sort of environment. When you're out in public, it's not nice to say things that are inappropriate. So your frontal lobes, your executive function skills, they prevent you from saying those things. The ability to remember to do something later. These are all considered executive functions. Traditional evaluations of executive function, they utilize paper and pencil neuropsychological tests. And the major limiting factor and what, what's relevant here is that they lack the complexity and the dynamic nature of real life situations of executive function. There are some tasks that have been developed within virtual environments that evaluate <coughs> executive function. And they target largely these specific areas of executive function, planning, organizing, multitasking, and problem solving, and prospective memory. And these tasks have been conducted in research in different patient populations. The Assessum Office was developed to complement this existing body of work. So you can see that the virtual reality evaluations of executive function only tap a few areas. And as you can see, executive function encompasses a wide range of specific skills. So the Assessum Office was built 
to capture those elements not yet addressed, so working memory, divided and selective attention. We were also looking at prospective memory and a little bit of planning. So the goals of the study were to evaluate the feasibility of using this assessment office in individuals with traumatic brain injury and multiple sclerosis and to look at the performance of those individuals compared to healthy controls to see how they did. The ASSIM office is an office environment and it was designed to simulate characteristics that would be normally occurring in a work environment, to be, but to be honest, their characteristics or demands you would experience in everyday life as well. The interface is with a PC through mouse and a flat screen monitor. And here's a couple screenshots. So you can see this is what the office environment looks like itself. The individual was able to get up and wander around in this office environment. And that they were, they were primarily located, however, at a specific desk. And at the desk, they were asked to perform different tasks. At these monitors, there were emails that would come in that they were supposed to tend to. There was also a real estate offer that would come through and they would have to determine whether they were going to accept or reject the real estate offer based on specific criteria. And in the meantime, they also had to pay attention. Behind them, there is a projector in a conference room that was on the fritz that would turn on and off. So they would have to be remembering to turn around to check to make sure it was still on, meanwhile still paying attention to everything going on at their computer. <coughs> the areas that we evaluated were responding to those emails, responding to the real estate offers. They had to determine then an additional criteria if the real estate offer criteria were met, then would they print or not print the offer. And then they had to retrieve that offer at the printer. So they had to physically get up and navigate in the environment, go to the printer and come back, and drop off that printout to the file box. And then they had to make sure the projector light was on. And so each of these tasks targeted our executive function constructs over here on the right. Our sample consisted, and this is the original pilot sample, consisted of seven individuals with TBI, seven individuals with MS, and seven healthy controls. And one important point to note here is that the patient populations were completely intact on standardized neuropsychological tests of executive function. So what we found when we compared the group of individuals with TBI to our healthy controls was that, um, and here are the measures on the left and then the constructs that they measure on the right, is that these tasks, even though they were intact, and, and even though the individuals with TBI were intact on these standard neuropsychological tests, they actually performed significantly more poorly on a few of these areas, on problem solving, working memory, and prospective memory. With the group of individuals with MS, we found that there was also the ability to differentiate between our MS group and our healthy control group, and these differences lay in um, their ability to respond to emails correctly, they perform more ca poorly in that category, as well as making decisions about the real estate offer, so problem solving, working memory again, um, same thing here, and divided attention. So, Based on this initial pilot work, we were able to determine that individuals with MS and TBI were 
able to, first of all, tolerate their virtual environment. So some of what we do when we start this pilot work is we're looking to determine, okay, well, is this able to differentiate between patient populations, healthy controls, but also you're looking at, when you start development work like this, you're looking at questions of feasibility. So can the participants be in the environment? Do they get sick? Do they vomit? Do they get dizzy? Do they get enraged? Is it too frustrating? Is it too easy? Is it too hard? So you think about all these different things and figure out whether it's feasible. Is the level of difficulty gauged just right? So we were able to determine that they were able to tolerate the environment, but they did have difficulty navigating. Some people did okay, but other people got so frustrated right from the get-go that they almost wouldn't finish, and some people did refuse to finish, as a matter of fact. The navigation with the mouse was troublesome enough that it would get people frustrated, so they weren't even able to actually do the tasks because they couldn't navigate properly. So that was a lesson learned, and you'll see how we learned from that and changed that in our subsequent work. They understood task instructions for simpler tasks, but some of the instructions were too difficult. So talking about working memory, we gave them sometimes so much information that they had to hold that working, that information in their mind and carry out the task at the same time. And that wasn't what we were trying to measure. We were trying to measure whether they could do the task. But because we made it too complex, then we weren't really sure whether we were measuring the actual construct at hand because the working memory was a confound to what we were trying to measure. That was a lesson learned that we applied going forward as well. And lastly, we learned that the distractors were excellent. <laughs> so someone could be at the desk, they could be working, they could be checking emails, and the phone would ring on another desk. And that was extremely distracting for them. And that's interesting because we put it in, we thought it was going to be a distractor, but time and time again, individuals reported, that was so frustrating to me, and it made me really, it made it really difficult for me to concentrate. So that was important information, because now we know we have such finite control over level of difficulty, just by changing the level of stimuli and distractors within the environment. And we also learned that there are a few areas that were actually really fairly achievable in terms of differentiating patient and healthy control populations. And we actually use this information to decide partly the areas of executive function that we were going to target in research going forward. So that brings us to the future directions after this project really were to look at the virtual reality executive function treatment. So we went from an evaluation tool to a treatment tool. So VREFT stands for virtual reality executive function treatment. The literature shows that there are about 10 class one and two studies for executive function. And this is in acquired brain injury and traumatic brain injury. And those studies really focus largely just on metacognition or like awareness of your cognitive functioning and problem solving itself. And the First of all, relative to memory treatments or tension treatments or treatments of other cognitive domains, executive function is relatively limited. And the limitation, at least in my opinion, is because executive function, working memory, planning, it is really hard to mimic in a lab scenario unless you have 
a tool, for example, like virtual reality that lets you kind of recreate a naturalistic environment. And so that's really why we haven't moved forward as much in the area executive function as we could have because it's so complex to be able to recreate those circumstances, to be able to give an individual the opportunity to practice that to get better at it. And within virtual reality, there's only one group. They're out of Hong Kong. Um, it's David Mann and his colleagues, and they're doing all kinds of really great problem-solving software treatments that target return to employment. They target problem-solving after brain injury. But this is the only existing software out there. So we wanted to add to that body of treatment software. We want to add that body of ability to treat executive function impairments. And we targeted two areas, divided attention and set shifting. So this particular study is funded by Neidler. And it is a three-year project to actually develop the software. At the beginning, the whole, at the beginning of the focus, we're to design and develop functional interactive virtual office environment for rehabilitation of those two targeted domains. And at the end of this development work, we will conduct a small private uh, pilot trial to determine the efficacy of this treatment. When you develop software, and this is true of both our earlier AssessSim office, an important focus is to use an iterative approach. So you're working with a software designer and you are having them develop a portion of the software, they give it to you, you're immediately testing on healthy controls, you're immediately testing on participants getting feedback, the feedback goes right back to the programmer, you make modifications, and then you keep going on and on like that in this iterative cycle. So much I'm surprised to learn of software development happens in a vacuum where a software company comes up with an idea, they develop the whole treatment from start to finish and they launch it in the marketplace and then find it doesn't work for the patient population. I don't even know why that even happens anymore, but it does. But the, in my opinion, one of the crucial elements of a successful treatment development is to use this iterative process, constant communication between the development team and the clinical team, and to use this flexible approach. I can't tell you we had written the grant, we had planned what we were going to do in the study, and once we actually started launching into testing with individuals, our pathway has changed and veered off in so many different directions that we didn't anticipate because when you plan, you know, best laid plans, <laughs> they often change once you start getting uh, input from other individuals. So I'm going to go through the different decisions that had to be made when we started developing this project. So most of, uh, I'm going to talk a big chunk of time about the development, and then I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about the actual treatment sessions, which is the exciting part to me. So the first thing you want to do is de decide how you're going to deploy this. And currently it's being deployed on a PC and a, a Microsoft uh, PC-based platform. But it can be deployed to the internet, to iOS and Mac operating <coughs> system, Android, and so on. So it has the capability of doing that. But currently we're just running it on PC system. Determine which hardware you're going to use. So one of the one of the benefits of this 
work is not only that, uh, and, and this actually applies to the fact that it's non-immersive, is that someone doesn't need special fancy equipment for it. So in that way, it also makes it affordable. And in the same way, we wanted to make sure that once we completed it, we could launch it on platforms where people could actually use. We could get it out into clinics. It was going to be affordable for clinicians to use, affordable for maybe down the road when we do tele-rehabilitation for people to actually utilize in the home. So to be able to <coughs> utilize it on just regular home PCs and tablets was very important. And in fact, we, we're launching it primarily right now on a, a desktop, but we have the capability and have done some testing already to be able to use it on a Google Nexus. In designing the virtual environments, you have to figure out what type of environment you're going to use. Now, we've chosen the office environment, but quite honestly, we could have chosen a kitchen or a home. And all the skills that we're developing really apply to all these scenarios. It just so happens that it's an office environment. And this treatment software isn't necessarily rehabilitating individuals to go back to the office. It's targeting skills that would be utilized in any kind of a job. We actually learned our lesson. We tried in the SSM office to use the a joystick and it was an absolute disaster. <laughs> um, it was so hard when I learned to use a, a, a joystick when I played the Atari 2600. <laughs> <laughs> you could toggle left, right, front, back and you had one button to push. I looked everywhere to find a very simple joystick and the simplest joystick I found had like 26 buttons on it. <laughs> so joystick was not going to work. Then we moved to the mouse, and as I mentioned before, we learned our lesson that that interface was really not working for a lot of people. So we actually moved away from having any sort of input. We're doing complete uh, touchscreen input. And not only that, but the navigation through the environment, I'll show you later in a screenshot, you can't just touch anywhere in the environment. You are limited to the amount of places you can navigate in the environment, so people are distracted and wander all over the place. So another consideration was how we were going to save the data, because this is important now, not only for the research to understand how people are progressing through treatment, but it's also important so if this is launched clinically in the future, people, uh, clinicians, are going to want to be able to, if they discharge a patient to home with the software, they're going to be able to want to track them. So there's consideration about whether this would be, the data would be saved locally or whether it would be uploaded to internet. And currently it has the capability of uploading to the internet with de-identified data. And if you are not attached to a network, such as in a hospital scenario, it downloads it to the local drive and then the next time you attach to a network, it uploads it to the network. And so last, I want to talk about, the, the, the last half, I really want to talk about the development of the treatment sessions. So there are some critical ingredients to whether the treatment session is going to be efficacious or not. And in the development process is where I was talking about you can start in one place and then as you learn you kind of take different paths that you didn't initially intend. And that happened a lot here. So what I'm actually summarizing for you is the lessons learned <laughs> over the last two years. This isn't knowledge that we had at the outset. And then I want to talk about the, the actual, very briefly at the end, the generation of the real-life cognitive tasks that we have in the environment. So first, context and orientation. We learned that when we're creating this environment, unless we kind of have a storyline and lots of context, 
it's not really like a game. It's kind of like those boring repetitive tasks that you're doing in the gym. You have to have some some interest for the person to follow along and want to come back and do session after session. So we created a whole company. <laughs> so our company is known as the Wonderkin Company. And these little animals are animated animals that are Wonderkin. And in our company, you come to work on your first day and you're an intern. And we discussed various positions that someone could be, but we thought the intern position fit best because kind of makes sense with a story where you're going to come to an internship position, you're going to be mentored, you're going to get a lot of feedback, you're going to be told if you're doing well or not, and so really fit with the storyline. So this is the opening screenshot that someone sees. This is your first day of your internship at the Wonderkin Corporation. You'll meet your supervisor and make yourself familiar with your new work environment. On your first day, you'll practice task switching. So already you're orienting them to the environment, but you're also orienting them to what they're going to be doing. And orientation has this theme throughout. We were kind of thinking as orientation is like what you do when you come to your first day of work, you get a tour of the place. But orienting is so much more. It's orienting to cues. It's orienting to feedback of whether someone's gotten it right or wrong. It's orienting to where to look in the screen for the stimulus to occur. It's, it's on so many different levels that we hadn't initially conceptualized. The orientation also includes the initial screen. When someone logs in, this is what our current modules look like, but this is going to expand significantly over the next year. We have our first modules <coughs> called Wonder Can Welcome. Our second module is called Print Room Party. Our third module is Techno Blitz. That's uh, to do with the computer and the tablet. And then Toasty Tantrum. And uh, Toasty <laughs> Tantrum is uh, where you have to uh, make coffee and toast for a conference for your supervisor. And do I just hit the go? No, okay. So this is actually what it looks like when they come to their first day of work. They come out of the elevator, they're introduced to Bobby. Bobby gives a tour around the office. And this is an orientation just of the environment. So she's saying, <coughs> these are our wonderkin. We make these animals so now they know what their job is, or at least what their corporation does. They get a walk around the floor that they're going to work on. This is the office supply room. They'll have a task in that room later. This is my favorite place for some fresh air and sunshine. This is the outdoor area, so they'll have a task there later. All these environments are places they're going to have tasks later. The gaming room is going to be actually something that they'll be able to work towards a reward and actually go and create, play games there. We actually created some games for that environment. There's no tasks that are going to happen in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Module four, Toasty Tantrum, happens in the kitchen. <coughs> and we come around to the lab. And I'll show you some scenes from the lab later. This is where they test the new Wonderkin prototypes. <laughs> okay. Orientation also refers to 
the idea that you're teaching someone to learn to click on the green buttons to advance the text boxes <coughs> so that they can receive additional instructions. It refers to instructions as to how to do the task. The certificate is missing a name, put it in the shredder pile. It also refers to the navigation button. So earlier I alluded to the fact that they wouldn't just be able to press anywhere on the screen. They actually have to physically, they can only touch these little navigation buttons. And in this case, they'd only be able to go <coughs> that direction. Okay, so once they're oriented to the environment, then they, you want to get them into set. So once they do the task, so getting into set is a neuropsychological term that means you want to make sure that they understand the instructions, they know what they're doing, and if they don't and they start to do the task, then you're not measuring what you're supposed to or you're not training what you're supposed to because they didn't understand the task. So your job is to get them into set. So in terms of getting into set, we have each module starts out with a trial period where they get instructions how to do each thing. They're told how to sort it. They're told if they're right. They're told if they're wrong. If they're wrong, they say try again. And so it's really following a procedure where they kind of have to get it right because the text boxes are guiding them to get it right. So in this case, there's a name on the certificate. Put it in the certificate pile. The certificate is missing a name put it in the shredder pile. They're also told that other <coughs> employees are going to send documents to the printer while you're sorting certificates. So now they're given a heads up that something else is going to happen while I'm doing my primary task. Now something else comes out and said, oh, this is for James. So this someone has printed something at the printer. They have to stop their sorting, and they have to put it in James's pile. They have to sort this. If they do it wrong, they're given a oops. Wrong pile, check the name again. And so here's another orientation button, actually, where they're told that this <coughs> yellow triangle with exclamation mark means that an error was made. And all the feedback we've given in the software is designed to be very light because you, want, you don't want it to be not fun. You want it to be motivating. You want them to be, you want them to respond to that and say, oh, okay, let me try again. So if you keep it nice and light like that, it's designed to really continue motivating. And the last thing to getting into set is so they go through this practice, they get a chance to sort, they get a chance to have some interruptions and see if they adapt to that new task and then switch back okay. But then if at the end of that trial period, they still don't get it, they have the ability to practice again. So getting into set is ensuring that they get into set no matter whether it takes them one time through or five. Next are diminishing cues. So they have all those, they have all of those um, cues and the text boxes to remind them how to do things early on. Once they say, I'm done practicing, and they go into the actual task, the cues go away. So you can't hear this now, but there's a printer noise coming out. All the audio has been clipped from these videos so that I can talk over it. But there's a printer sound. And as you can see right there, it says printing. The document is going to come out. And then they're going to have to choose. So um, the person navigating this chose correctly. Another uh, document is going to come out. This one has a certificate. So it should go into the certificates pile, but he sorted it wrong. So now. It, there's your feedback, but your only feedback comes up at this stage when you've done something wrong. 
Otherwise, the feedback disappears. And currently, this is set really kind of dichotomous. Either feedback is on or off. But over time, what we're developing into software is to have software that actually naturally adapts to whether someone's doing well or not. So if they're struggling, the task gets easier. And if they're doing really well, you start pulling away cues like crazy, you start making the printer go faster, you can adapt the level of difficulty as needed to make sure it keeps the person remain, remaining engaged. The distracting stimuli can come by two methods, so visual or verbal. And I don't have any screenshots of this yet because largely it's, it's, um, it's, it, we're not doing audio here, but as mentioned in the assessment, they can be phones ringing, they can be the lighting of the, the environment that you're in. The visual stimuli can be people walking by. They can be people standing up. You can have a chatty intern next to you constantly peering over your cube and asking you what you're doing. Um, or like an office space, you can have someone mumbling next door to you. And uh, you have to ignore all these stimuli and you have to focus on the task at hand. So you can increase the level of difficulty as much as you want using both verbal and <coughs> visual approaches. Next is psychoeducation. This is a really important part of, so they do the task now. How are they going to relate it to what they do when they go home? So we need to explain to them, this is what you're doing, we need to define it, we need to give it a name, so that they can start incorporating it into what they're doing in their daily life. And this is an example of a screenshot that they would see at the end of a session. Today you practice task switching, going back and forth from one task to another. In today's tasks, you switch between sorting documents and sorting certificates at the printer. So now you're saying, this is the definition and this is what you did that was task switching. And then you tie it back to a prior session. You say, this is similar to the task switching you did when you were sorting cows and shipping goats in the lab. <laughs> More of that later. And it's important to practice task switching because this skill is used for many of the tasks, not just at, in your job at Wonderkin, but in real life. So let's give some examples of what task switching looks like. So you have some screenshots then of someone preparing dinner, chopping vegetables, switching their tasks, going to preparing something on the stove, and then moving back to vegetables again. This is a real life example. And then the next piece to then driving that home is, okay, so now you explain to them what they're doing, you explain why they're doing it, you explain what they're doing in the environment that was that. Now you need to get them to think about, but what in your life is like what we just did? So. We have created these screenshots that, now this is not exactly like having a clinician where there's a complete open-ended dialogue happening because it's on software, we have to limit the responses somehow. What we have so far is asking them to pick an example of task switching that you do in your daily life. So you're folding laundry while, and then you give them a few options. You entertain your child, you watch TV, or you talk on the phone. So they click which one applies to them. <coughs> And then they're asked to later try and notice when you do this task in your daily life. And so you're kind of giving them homework. You're saying, okay, well, you've done this here now. Think about this while you're at home before we meet for our next session. Identify this task at home and come back to me with it later. And this is actually a look through
This is going a little fast. Let me back it up. Oops. So what's happening here is um, at the end of the session, they're given that homework, right? They come back for the next session, and then there's a recap. So you're wanting to tie in what they did before with what they're doing the next session. So there's continuity. So we ask them, what did you practice last time? So this is just to get to jog their memory. Which character did you remember from last session? And where did you carry out your task during the last session? Because the task can occur in any room. Now, this is where they're supposed to take that information that they did while they're at home, their homework, they're going to identify the task that they did at home, that was multitasking or task switching, and they're going to enter it in here. And this is clearly needs to be done with a clinician because there's feedback that's given. But they enter in the information, or the clinician probably will type in the information, and then they're asked how did they do with that task? And if they didn't do very well at that task, what was it that made it difficult? What were the challenges? What were the barriers? How did you get past that? And if they had difficulty, then they discuss that further with the clinician. And we kind of make it light and funny. No problems at all, I'm a rock star. Or I made a mistake. Okay, and lastly, motivation. So this is our testing lab. And we tried to have a lot of fun with this. Some of it's kind of boring. You're at an office, you're at the desk, you're looking at emails, but some of it's kind of fun. In this task, the Wonderkin testing lab, they're to test cows and determine whether they're broken or not. Now, this is the testing. So this Wonderkin is ready. So click here to pass inspection. So you're told, and he does a cute little moo right there. <laughs> and they sent up the shipping tube. Pew. <laughs> <laughs> Now another Wonderkin comes out. Oh, he doesn't look quite right. <laughs> He's put on the table. Sometimes our factory overheats Wonderkin. This one is sparking, so it's broken. Click here to discard it. So now it goes down the shredder chute. <laughs> So this is one way we create motivation because this is, I mean, there's no job that requires more creativity than this sort of, this sort of software. So even though we have some tasks that are really um, very office specific or there's a task that takes place in the supply room, I'll, I'll cover a few of the other areas. There's a, the, the toasty tantrum where you're doing coffee and bagels and some of it's kind of silly and kind of fun. And so that's one way that you can weave mo motivation. Another way to weave motivation is and ask them, find out, ask them how much did you enjoy, enjoy that task. So you're constantly gauging whether they're having fun with it. And this is actually pretty important for the development portion of this, but once the program is actually launched commercially, you're still going to want to constantly check in with your patient and t see whether they're engaged or not. Also, motivation is encouraged by letting them know how they did. So if they know they're doing well, that's motivating, it helps them to work hard. If they didn't do as well as they wanted to, then they come back wanting to get a better score next time. 
Also adding some humor, not just in the actual storyline, but in the text that's throughout. It's got here early, traffic must have been late. Well, let's jump into the day then. Today we have two tasks for you, one on your computer, this is the kind of bo more boring one I was telling you about, and the other one on the brand new tablet. We're under time crunch, so you'll have to do both tasks at the same time. <coughs> Multitasking is our motto at Wonderkin Corp. <laughs> so, the mug, <laughs> worst boss ever. These little things are just kind of weaved in throughout and you don't even notice them most of the time if you're not looking, but they're in there. And then motivation then is encouraged by, green is always indicating positive, you've gotten this right, great job. And we're also weaving in motivators through the virtual world. So if you do well, you're gonna get a new tablet. And so there are various new things that the intern will get along the way. Eventually the intern will also get promoted. These sorts of motivators to work hard at your virtual job. And there's also motivation because you're creating an environment that varies. You're not just having them come back and work at the computer every day. They're not working in the file room every day. They're getting a chance to work at the computer and in the kitchen and the copy room. So it's always different. We're always changing it up. So last couple areas, um, another critical <coughs> ingredient uh, to this is assessing a patient's status. And so you want to know how they're doing at all times, not just if they're having fun. So one of the ways we can do that is at the end of each session, ask how they're doing. So we do. We have a series of questions that we ask. Oh, oh it's going really fast. <laughs> Let me back it up. So how did you enjoy this task? How difficult was the task? How well do you think you did? And we didn't catch the last one, it was how, how tired are you? So that will be later built into the possibility of maybe requiring them to pause the program and go back to it later if they report that they're very fatigued. We also wanted to create awareness of deficits because so often after brain injury, there's not an awareness of just how well or not well an individual is doing. So one of the ways that we've done this is we ask them how well they think they did and we labor, give them feedback about that. So if there's a great discrepancy, that can be a point of discussion in the clinical treatment session. And lastly, targeting different employment scenarios. So this is just a, a, a sampling of what we have, but um, we only have four modules so far. We're going to be opening up other modules and currently we're still working all on the same floor, but we're gonna open up other modules to different areas of the office building. As a matter of fact, you're gonna be able to go down to the lobby where there's lots of things happening and people coming and going. But for now, this is just a sampling. So we have the kitchen, uh, later we're developing the food court. There's a supply room, a lab, and a desk. And um, these different scenarios are really meant to mimic the types of skills that would see in different employment scenarios. So the kitchen and food court is meant to maybe target some skills you might use if you're doing weight staffing. And filing things in supply room might mimic the types of skills that we required in a stockroom job. The lab, maybe some work at Kessler. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, and then activities at the desk or the computer with the tablet or the PC, they would obviously reflect an actual office job. And we're gonna continue to expand this as we go along. And the last area that I wanted to talk about is the 
generating the real life cognitive tasks. This has undoubtedly been the most challenging aspect of this development study is not just figuring out, well, what's divided attention, what set shifting is, but not what divided attention set shifting in our standard neuropsychological test, but what are those things in the real world? And how do we recreate those things? And how do we create different levels of difficulty of them? And how do we create them in different environments within our virtual world so that we have enough samples and examples that it remains interesting <coughs> for the participant? And within our two domains that are in our VREFT, set shifting, divided attention, here's a sampling again of so far the environments that we have, the kitchen, supply room, lab, and desk. So you didn't get to see this, but the toasty tantrum is going to take place in the kitchen, and that's a divided attention test. So someone's going to come into the kitchen. They're going to be told, oh my gosh, your boss just planned a meeting. You have to make a whole bunch of coffees and toasts for people coming to the meeting, and you have to do both things at the same time. You're filling the coffee, you're making sure it doesn't overflow, and you're toasting the toast and making sure it doesn't burn. And so. That's uh, one example, divided attention. For this example, we haven't developed yet a set shifting task for there, but we literally have a long working document of brainstorming where we have different ideas for different domains and for different settings within the virtual environment. So for the supply room, we actually have two tasks. One is switching between putting away supplies that belong to one department, and then you get a new delivery, you have to stop that, and then you have to put supplies away in another department. Both of them are filing, but you're literally stopping one task to do another, and then going back to the first one. And then an increased level of difficulty for that would be a divided attention task where you're putting away your own supplies, you've got a brand new intern standing next to you putting away supplies, and you've got to pay attention you're doing what you're doing right. You also have to keep your eye on the new intern to make sure that they're not filing anything incorrectly. So again, there's a long document where we're working <coughs> on things. We think we've finally gotten to the point where we've really hit the nail on the head and we're starting to develop these tasks that really are reminiscent of real life scenarios. And we have a lot more modules to go, but so far I think we've had really good success. And I'd like to thank all of the people that are involved in providing feedback along the way. Um, there's a few people on our research team here, as well as our collaborator at the University of Southern California, Institute for Creative Technologies. Sebastian Koenig is my colleague who is in Australia, who is our programmer and human interface technology engineer. And Yael Govrova, our visiting scientist, has contributed in terms of her perception of this application in occupational therapy setting. Um, and all of our rehab advisory board have been extremely in instrumental. So I mentioned that there's it this iterative process. Not only are we creating a snippet of software and then we're getting volunteers from the lab to go through, by the way, anybody interested in being a part of that, definitely let Leah or Haley know because we're always interested in volunteers for that part of it. We're also giving it to people with TBI, and we're also then showing it to these people who are all rehab experts that are in the field. They have all varying levels of expertise, varying levels of experience, <coughs> and some do research, some do clinical work, and they all come from, and, and actually we have one OT, and they all come from different areas with different sets of experiences. And so these people 
are largely what has guided us to where we are to help determine what those critical ingredients are. So we couldn't have done it without this. And, and I can't forget Leah and Haley, and prior to Leah and Haley, um, Jules, thank you, um, our creative team who's created all these scenarios and done the brainstorming work.